Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. If you are enjoying the show, and I hope you are, I wanted to mention our Patreon because that is the best thing that you can do to support the show if you are so inclined. Patrons get access to every podcast a week early without any of the ads. There's also members-only channels in the Discord that I am super active in. I do Q&As, I do some giveaways, and for everyone who has asked, there's also a way to have me review your music or artwork or anything else that you would like to get my eyes or ears on. Every month, I do a call for submissions on Patreon. You post your work in the comments, and then I will review it live on Twitch and then post them to YouTube for everybody on Patreon as well. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, there's a link to that in the show notes for this podcast. First of all, thank you so much for making time for this. I know you got a lot of stuff going on. And uh, as I was telling them, I've been uh, wanting to do this interview for about 30 years now. Uh, (laughs) So the message is just hang on for about 28 years and you too may get a chance to interview one of your childhood heroes. So uh, very excited for this one. And uh, I really appreciate you making time for this. You know, it's so weird. I watch, you know, I watch some of your videos and every time I go to YouTube, you know, there's like your YouTube feed. There's always one of your videos in my YouTube feed. And I'm always like, what did cause emo to die? Click. <laughs> what is the secret history of AFI? Click. <laughs> now, you know, I watch your videos. It's, you got a You got a great show. It's awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, you Probably seeing I've got quite a few today, flyers and stuff up on my uh, wall there. I've noticed. I've noticed. Cool. Well, um, I've got a lot of questions, but I guess for anybody who may not be uh, familiar, what are you, or I guess for for me, I don't even know what all you do these days. What are you up to these days? I am mostly a yoga teacher. I'm also a freelance graphic designer, which is kind of like my side hustle to make ends meet, but I mostly do yoga. You know, the before the lockdown and the pandemic and everything, I was traveling, teaching, doing workshops, doing retreats. And so it's been tough for the past couple of years because all that stopped and now it kind of stopped again. I'm, I'm, I was actually supposed to be in Colombia, uh, but I couldn't go because I'm not vaccinated. So it's oh. it's it's kind of rough. But, uh, you know, getting by and, um, you know, mostly just kind of sitting in my apartment and freezing cold upstate New York. <laughs> But yeah, you know, it, it's, it's been good. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I do music today, just played punk rock bowling. That was really fun with the descendants and Devo, one of my favorite bands, Devo. Oh, wow. So we do get to play every now and then we do play pretty often, but, um, you know, just with the last couple of years, we only played a couple of shows, right? But we're going on tour in June and July. We're going to be in Europe today is, and we're booking some shelter shows and, uh, I'm working on a new band. So that's been taking up a lot of my time, actually. I've been working on a new band for like a year. Cool. Can you tell us anything about that? Uh, It's melodic, hardcore, 
very melodic hardcore. We we started a new genre called hardcore bop. Okay. <laughs> it's fast, it's thrash. It's kind of like it's got a girl singer, which is you know, it's sort of like Dag Nasty-ish, later era seven seconds-ish. Uh, because it's got a girl singer who can really sing really well, it's it kind of pushes it more into that, you know, pop vein. But it's it's really good, exciting firing music i'm really I'm, I'm really into it so that's that should be out in 2022 sometime cool i'll be excited to hear that just to kind of give some context for you know any of the younger folks to me anyway and you know youth of today is even a little bit before my time not by much but a little bit i consider youth of today to be the band that really kind of laid the foundation for what you know the template for what hardcore is now as far as the way that it sounds and looks and like people think of hardcore now it's like Youth of Today laid that foundation to me. But from what I understand from hearing you guys tell stories and stuff of the old days, you know, say like 1984, 85, and you guys kind of first started to come on the scene in New York City, it sounds like the hardcore scene back then, you know, the sort of Lower East Side kind of scene was very, very, very different world. And what you guys were doing was just a complete shock to the system. Can you kind of set the stage for people and tell them a little bit about that and what the reception was to what you guys were doing? Well, it's hard to believe, but when we first started, there wasn't a straight edge scene. Like there wasn't a straight edge scene when minor threat were together. There wasn't a straight edge scene when SSD and, you know, some of these seminal straight edge bands, there wasn't really like a scene like we have now with, you know, thousands of straight edge kids and straight edge bands. And it's almost like straight edge has become a genre in itself. But it, it wasn't like that back then. It was, you know, there was certain pockets of kids that were into straight edge, but it was few and far between and minor threat had broken up. And, you know, it wasn't even like minor threat, you know, pushed the straight edge thing. You know, the whole band wasn't straight edge. It was just kind of like a song and an idea. They kind of downplayed it. So, uh, you know, Youth of Today, we were, we had the idea when we started that we wanted to be like a full on straight edge band, get all the members be straight edge. And it was something that was, you know, in our own kind of teenage way, it was something that was very near and dear to our hearts because we would go to shows in New York city. And if you go to the lower East side, in New York city, now there's like the gap and Starbucks and supermodels sunbathing in Tompkins square park. But, you know, back in 1985, 1986, it was, it was terrible. It I looks mean, like it a was, literal war zone if you watch videos from back then. If you could have seen Tompkins Square Park, you know, it was nothing but homeless, like tents and people doing drugs and not even like smoking pot. It's like people smoking crack and shooting heroin. And, you know, it was really bad. It was really dangerous. And we just, you know, we always, uh, you know, I lived in upstate New York, Ray lived in Connecticut, and we were obsessed with New York hardcore. Like, we loved Agnostic Front. We loved the Cro-Mags. You know, we loved Warzone. And as little kids, we would kind of go down to CBGB's and we'd go to those legendary matinees. But man, let me tell you, CBGB's was, it was a messed up place. You talk to anybody from, from back then. Nobody was straight edge. Tons of drugs, tons of hard drugs. I, I remember the first time we played CBGBs, there was this guy that booked the shows. His name was Johnny Stiff. 
And we were backstage at that crappy little backstage of CBGB's. We were putting X's on our hands. And he walked back and he he set up the show for us. He's like, are you guys crazy? You're going to go out there with X's on your hands? New York is never going to be straight edge. It's never, ever going to be straight edge. Drugs just are too embedded in this scene. And it was really weird because a few months later, there's like a huge straight edge scene in New York. And, you know, Ray B's from Warzone became straight edge. And he was, I remember the first time I saw Ray B's with X's on his hands. He was walking down the Bowery with a huge boom box with an X on his hands playing, playing seven seconds. I was like, am I in some alternate reality right now? <laughs> you know, because two weeks later he was smoking dust in the base for the CBGBs. And then he went all posi straight edge. So it was, it was an interesting time because it was sort of a bold move on our part to kind of, you know, jump into that scene and, uh, you know, talk about things that weren't accepted and weren't popular at the time. And, uh, I think it, I think it kind of paid off because a lot of kids were into it. And I mean, you know, whatever, 40 years later now or whatever it is, which is horrifying to say, but, uh, you know, here we are, you know, between youth of today and the other bands that you've done and shelter and stuff. I mean, you really did change the world in some way, which is pretty amazing. You know, there's tens of thousands of people all over the world who are into straight edge. However many people that you expose to Christian consciousness and stuff. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Well, we were always a band on a mission. You know, Youth of Today wasn't just a band. We were out. We were literally out to change the world. <laughs> you know, we were 18-year-old kids. And, you know, I think a lot, I think youth means, you know, you have some, some youthful idealism. Like, you know, young people, they look out in the world. They look at their parents. They look at the way the world is. And they're like, I don't like this. I don't want to grow up in a world that's like this. I want to change things. I think, you know, most young kids are like that. And we were also like that. You know, we even looked at our little microcosm of world. Look at the punk scene. It's violent. It's filled with drugs. It's negative. It's nihilistic. We didn't want to be like that. We were more positive, straight edge, um, you know, into clean living, into healthy living, into progressive living. We weren't into racism. We weren't into sexism. And uh, I think it was just the kind of breath of fresh air that the scene needed because I think a lot of kids felt that way. A lot of kids felt like the world's fucked up. And now I got into punk rock to get away with, get away from that. And punk rock's just more fucked up than the world. And, you know, we set out to kind of, make a change and, 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 you know, change the way that, you know, the scene was and change. And most importantly, it was, it was like, we wanted to change the way we were, you know, we wanted to live a different lifestyle. We, you know, we became vegetarian, um, which was pretty kind of crazy in the scene and in the world back then. I mean, vegetarian is so mainstream now. Yeah. But in the 80s, I mean, you probably remember, even in the 90s. Sure. I remember going to those dusty food co-ops and stuff with my mom when I was a kid, you know, and uh, now you go to fucking Subway and they've got vegan stuff on the menu. Yeah. You know, right near CBGB's, a few blocks away from CBGB's, there's a gigantic Whole Foods that takes up like one city block. And if you had told me when I was a vegetarian in like 1987, that there was going to be a health food store as big as a city block with tons of vegetarian food right near CBGB's. I, I couldn't have even imagined it. 
And so a lot of these ideas that we had when we were like little kids, they slowly but surely crept into the mainstream. And, you know, I, I, I really have to hand it to bands like Earth Crisis, you know, in the early nineties when they were vegan and everybody thought that they were nuts mm -hmm. and they just kind of kept on chugging along and, you know, they really believed in it and look at it now you can get a vegan burger at Burger King, you know? So I think the hardcore scene was actually pretty switched on and pretty into these, you know, progressive ideas way before they, you know, became popular, which was mm -hmm. kind of cool to see. I, mean, I think about the people, you know, that, and I'm not, putting them down for this. I think it's great, but that discovered the Columbus day is genocide thing like three years ago. And it's like, man, remember abnegation and stuff talking about that in like 1992 or, you know, the dead Kennedys talking about war for war for oil and right, things like right. that in, in, the, in the early eighties. And now it's just kind of, you know, common knowledge, right. You know, the first hardcore band I ever saw was MDC. Do you remember mm -hmm. that band? Of course. I love them. Millions of dead cops. What a great name. So topical. <laughs> I mean, the stuff that they were talking about in 1980 could have come out six months ago and it would have sounded completely modern and contemporary. They were the first show that I saw because, you know, I was a little kid. I was like 14 years old from the suburbs of, you know, New York City. I lived in Westchester. So, if you know, Westchester, it's all kind of like rich <clears throat> kids and, yeah, you know, uh, like really, really nice suburbs. So I couldn't I couldn't go to shows. You know, the shows were just, they started really late. You know, you couldn't take the train back after like 11 o'clock or something. But MDC played a, a, a matinee show in Central Park. So I went and I was probably, I think I was either 14 or 15. And the singer for MDC, it was the first hardcore show I ever saw. And I was so amazed that people were like moshing, you know, because I had heard of moshing, but I never went to a show. I heard, you see stage diving on TV and yeah. stuff. And I, I remember seeing fear on Saturday night live and people were stage diving and just being amazed by it. And so people were stage diving and people were moshing, but what really gripped me about that show and what really separates hardcore from any other genre of music is that the singer was up on stage, um, Dave, and he was saying all this stuff about vegetarianism. And he was saying all about how, um, you know, McDonald's is ruining the environment. They cut down the rainforest for, you know, for cheap grazing land for cattle, all this stuff that's like, you know, people are just starting to learn about mm -hmm. now. He was saying this, you know, in literally, like you're saying, in the early 80s. And he was saying how um, eating meat wasn't healthy and it causes heart disease and it causes heart attacks. And what kind of, what, what kind of music are you going to go see? And the singer is just like professing ideas between songs of stuff that he really believes in. He's talking really about cross-dressing too, you know? Yeah. An, yeah. Another thing that, that this is zero people were talking about that in the eighties. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing, but you know, I remember, you know, the vegetarian thing, it was like that show, it really planted a seed in my mind because he was saying so much about vegetarianism and how, you know, the brutality of the slaughterhouses. I'm a freaking 14 year old kid. I never even fathomed this stuff before. You know what? My parents would throw a hamburger in front of my, in, on my plate and I would eat it. I wouldn't think twice about it. And I thought that that was so cool. Like that was so, that was such the power of music, especially punk rock and hardcore because it brought all these new ideas, you know, to the table. And there was a lot of like discussion and debate and, it was really, really cool. It was, it was very, very magical, I thought. 
And so Youth of Today, we wanted to do that too. We wanted to bring our ideas to the table about clean living and straight edge. And, you know, some people liked it, some people didn't, but it was kind of cool because the hardcore scene was this big melting pot of ideas. To me, that's the magic of music, that you listen to music and it kind of changes your idea about life. And, you know, all my favorite bands from Minor Threat, you know, to Seven Seconds, even to bands like the Curl Mags, you know, they did that for me. They, they sort of gave me a new map to navigate my life with. And that was really important to me. And that was something that I wanted to pay forward in all the bands that I did, um, you know, when I started playing music. Well, the main thing I wanted to talk about with you is, um, you know, since I got the you know, compilation of uh, War on Illusion, which for those who aren't familiar, that was the zine you did for a few years back in the 90s, which I loved. I had that in high school and it was super influential on me. And so I really wanted to kind of talk about some of those ideas and about the Krishna consciousness side of things. I discovered Youth of Today, I think I was 13 or 14. And then I had a, a friend who was a couple years older than me that was actually a devotee, one of the first people I knew was into that. And he was like, oh, you like Youth of Today? You should check out Shelter. I was like, oh, Okay. Shelter instantly made sense to me in a way that I, I feel like I was like some sort of a very weird combination. My mom, you're familiar with Yogananda, right? Yeah. Yeah. My mom was really into Yogananda. And uh, so I was, already, of course, I thought it was stupid because my mom was into it, you know, but I was familiar with a lot of these ideas because of her. And so I was like, these ideas felt familiar to me. And I was like, oh, there's a hardcore band that's like talking about all that like shit that Yogananda, Yogananda talks about. Like, this makes total sense to me. I get it. And I like just instantly loved it. And, you know, we were talking about before uh, before this, I was uh, playing some of the uh, the sermon track from the end of uh, what, what, which one is that from? There, there was there was a class, uh, uh, there was a Gita class on both Quest for Certainty and Attaining the Supreme. It was a hit, they were both hidden tracks on the CD. Yeah, so I remember it's it's the one where he's talking about Dharma and stuff. And you know, I remember hearing that whatever it was when I was like 14, 15 years old, whatever it was, I still talk about that sermon all the time. Like I was talking about it with my wife like last night, you know, in relation to something else. And like the the ideas that you guys you know, we're conveying, which, you know, we're, we're not necessarily your ideas, but the ideas that you guys were conveying to me are so powerful that I hope that anybody listening to this just takes away a sliver of that because like legitimately changed my life. I mean, I've, I've never been religious, but the core principles that you guys were talking about in all those songs really legitimately changed my life. And I would not be the person that I am now uh, without that. Can you talk about, I guess, what is Krishna consciousness for anybody who's not familiar? Krishna consciousness is just a name. It was it was kind of like a Western term that came up for uh, for basically the path of bhakti. So if you if you study yoga, there's different paths of yoga, but they're not actually like separate paths. Like you'll hear karma, you'll hear jnana, you'll hear hatha yoga, which is the path of physical yoga. So Karma means activity. Jnana means um, in intelligence or study. And then you'll have Hatha yoga, which means the physical yoga practice, the up dogs, the down dogs. And then you'll hear of this path that's called bhakti, which means it's sometimes it's called the yoga of the heart or the yoga of devotion. And that's basically what Krishna consciousness is. It's, it's the bhakti thread of yoga. But 
some people have a misconception that, you know, if you're intelligent, you follow Gana. If you are an active person, you take the path of karma. If you are a, an emotional, heartfelt person, you take this path of bhakti. But it's not, it's not actually like that. If you really read this yoga literature from India, it's more like a ladder. And bhakti is at the top. Bhakti is like the highest destination of your of your yoga path. And it starts out with karma. It starts out with the idea that, you know, basically the bottom rung of the ladder is I'm a materialist. I'm full on into, into matter. I think, you know, I think that making money and having a really nice car and having a pretty girlfriend on my arm to impress everybody, that's going to make me happy. <laughs> and I'll step over anybody that I need to step over to get what I want. You know, that's like the bottom rung of the ladder. You are a materialist. You're selfish, you're narcissistic. Um, a little higher than that, the next rung on the ladder is karma, where you start to realize that, you know, my activities that I perform, they have a ripple effect in the world. And some of the things that I'm doing to get ahead, they're causing suffering to other people. And according to this law of nature of karma, if I'm doing things that are causing distress and suffering to other people, I'm going to have to get that same energy. Um, back to me. And so you start to realize how the, how the world works and how the energy, you know, how the subtle energies of the world work. And you stop doing things that are harmful to other people. And then the next rung of the ladder is Gana. That's when you start to really contemplate, are these things that I'm busting my ass over really going to make me happy? Like, Am I, am I going to be any happier if I have a million dollars in my bank account or if I just have a hundred thousand dollars? Like, does money even cause happiness, you know, uh, or other things in, in Ghana, you know what, I'm going to die one day. Like this life is temporary. Like I'm living life, you know, I'm going through life almost like I'm in a canoe and I'm about to go over Niagara Falls and I'm just got my head stuck in the sand. And I'm totally ignoring that fact. Life is temporary. Life is filled with, with, with suffering. Life is, you know, has all these inherent problems, birth, death, old age, disease. So you start to get a little bit more philosophical. And that's the next rung up. That's, that's Gana. That's even higher than, than karma. And then above that is the path of bhakti. Once you start to figure out that I'm actually not the body but I'm a spirit soul that's inside of the body. I'm like a spark of consciousness and energy that's inside of this body that animates the body. And this body's temporary. I can see I'm changing bodies throughout this lifetime. I was in a kid body. I was in a punk rock teenager body. I was in a, you know, a, a middle-aged man body. But there's, a, but there's a consciousness inside that's like a witness to all the different bodies that I'm passing through. There's something eternal and unchanging even though the, wor the world around me and even my own body is constantly in flux. So there's an eternal spirit soul. Where does that come from? It comes from a supreme divine source. You know, this is what, this is what the yoga literature tells us, books like Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, all these, you know, um, classics of, of Indian literature. They say that there's one divine source that everything material and spiritual comes from. And just like we have personality, that source isn't just like a gas or a ball of energy or the force. Those things are true. There is an all expansive energy that connects us all. 
But ultimately behind that is a person. Like it's a real kind of interesting theory that the source of everything has personality and you have a relationship with that with that supreme being and that supreme being when you turn your face back to that supreme being that supreme being reaches through space and time and interjects in your life and starts to make all these arrangements in your life for your own spiritual evolution you'll find books you'll find teachers you'll listen to a shelter record with this weird class at the end of the cd and it starts to make sense to you and it starts to push you forward on this on this path you know according to the path of bhakti life isn't really meant for for material upliftment life is really meant for spiritual upliftment and i think a lot of people find you know and and when i first started getting into christian consciousness and you know bhakti and yoga and bhagavad gita and all this stuff it made it made a lot of sense to me because a lot of people have this thing that i'm going to be really happy if only blank this this happens like i'm a musician right now if i can somehow get in a band and like go on tour then i'm going to be happy like i don't have any money now but if i can somehow work hard and make a lot of money then i'm going to be happy but a lot of people they they work really hard but they don't actually achieve that goal but they still have that dream in their mind that once i get there then i'm going to be happy but when i was a kid it was almost like all my dreams came true like I was so into music and into like, you know, punk rock and hardcore when I was like really young, like 11, 12 years old, all I wanted to do was be in a band. All I wanted to do was play music. I was like obsessed with music, obsessed with um, playing guitar. And then I turned 18 and we started this band Youth of Today. And it was just like, bam, things just started unfolding. The band kept on getting bigger and bigger. And we we're playing these shows. We're going on tour and we're going on tour in Europe, which was unheard of. Right. And even later, and even later on, when we were, when, you know, I was playing in shelter, we're playing festival shows to a hundred thousand people on MTV and all that. We're on MTV. We're doing, uh, you know, us tours with arena tours with no doubt. It's just like it, it, you know, all those things that I, that I wanted, I got, and I realized, you know what, this isn't the goal of life. This isn't what's going to really make me happy. It's, it's not about fame. It's not about money. It's not about followers. It's not about strength or beauty. You know, those things are so shallow. If you really want to find true happiness, you got to go way deeper. And mm -hmm. that's a, and that is a spiritual quest. So really that's what Krishna consciousness is about. It's the search for it's the search for God and your connection with God. The quest for certainty. It's the quest for certainty. <laughs> in an, in an uncertain world where everything's changing and and that's at the end. What is that eternal thing that I can hold on to? Um, and for some reason, when I was a young kid, it just it it when I was getting into it, it grabbed me. It just grabbed me, and I was just fascinated by it. And you know that's how that's how Shelter came about. And you know it's really cool because the hardcore scene is at least twenty years in front of mainstream culture. And back when Shelter started, things like meditation were so weird like if you meditated you're crazy you're crazy now any doctor is going to tell you yeah you've got high blood pressure you shouldn't meditate <laughs> right um and even things like yoga you I should be vegetarian I, and meditate and do yoga <laughs> yeah especially what shelter was telling everybody about right um 
But yeah, and but yet at the same time, you know, there is a lot of uh, you know, there's so much materialism in hardcore and so much, you know, so so you know, hardcore gets lost in the bullshit just like mainstream society does too, with ego and beefs and gossip and collecting vinyl and all that other shit, you know, that there's plenty of that stuff the, in hardcore too. Having the right sneakers. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and of course I've been guilty of all that stuff as just as much as anybody. Um, but that, that's the thing that really always stood out to me about shelter and other bands like downset and one and stuff too, is just like that, um, there's truth to the things that you guys were saying that just has continued to be true for my whole life. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I look back on, you know, from, you know, the eighties and nineties and stuff where I'm like, yeah, that was cool. But you know, this part of it didn't hold up, but the, the stuff that you guys said, you know, 30 years ago is more true to me than ever. And I think that says a lot about the way that you guys express those ideas. Well, the Bhagavad Gita was written 5,000 years ago. And you can pick up that book in 2022 and read it. And it has, it's almost like it has more relevance now than it probably had 5,000 years ago because we live in such a materialistic culture. Right. Like, take a song like Photographs Lie. Like, that song could be about fucking TikTok or Instagram today yeah i never thought about that it's true <laughs> to, i read the lyrics a while ago i was like holy shit like this is more relevant than ever and to top it off capo is just a great lyric writer i mean i gotta give props to that guy he wrote some really really great thoughtful lyrics that were way ahead of uh, ahead of you know his time so uh yeah you know shelter had some really kind of cool songs I, i'm really proud of that band and proud of you know everything we did we're actually going to work on another record too. Oh, wow. We're going to do one last record. It's going to be great. Okay. I'm going to work on it this year. Any concrete plans for that yet? Or well, right now I'm finishing up this, um, this band that I'm doing and, uh, we have six songs recorded. We just tracked seven more that I have to do guitar tracks for, and we have to track the vocals and, and mix them. But the day that I finish that, then I'm going to start working on some shelter stuff. I'm excited. With all of that being said, I'm sure over the years that you've been doing this, your beliefs have evolved in to some extent. How have you changed your perspective on things since the early days of Shelter? When you're young, you're idealistic, just like we were talking about before. And that idealism can sometimes manifest intolerant. You take like a young kind of green straight edge kid. He gets into straight edge. It's a good idea. It's affecting his life. It's uplifting his life. You know, he used to get drunk every weekend, you know, was clouded in, you know, in, a, you know, a dust storm of intoxication. And then he goes straight edge and his life immediately improves. So he starts to really like point the finger at other people that drink like you're bad. Look at how fallen you are. Look at how stupid you are. <laughs> you know, you mm -hmm. drink. I don't. I'm better than you. There's there's that trap that anybody can really fall into. And even with things like a, a spiritual path, you know, it's, it's meant to uplift you, but if you're, you know, if you're using it sort of in the service of your false ego, mm -hmm. where you think you start to think you're better than other people and you start to look down on other people, then you're not making progress. You're actually going backwards. So I think there was some of that youthful idealism, you know, with, with shelter where it was like, you know, we have the truth. 
<laughs> and we're going to go around and spread the truth. And all these people are in Maya, they're an illusion. Mm-hmm. Now, and now I'm just, you know, now I'm realizing that, you know, I just want, first of all, I just want to really work on myself. I'm not so much of like a, a preacher anymore. You know what I mean? Like shelter, we were like a bunch of like people out there, like, you know, we would have knocked door to door with the Bhagavad Gita, like, you know, the, the Mormons or whatever. We would have done that. We were so into it. But nowadays, I just I just like to work on myself. And I think when people see that you've made significant changes in your in your life, that's the only kind of quote unquote preaching you have to do because people see, wow, look at this guy. He, he made this change. He made that change. He's doing so good. He's much happier in life. Um, maybe I should be like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's like, you know, nowadays that's more of like what I'm into, you know, just trying to be a, like a really good example. And I don't really, you know, tell, t- I, I'm a yoga teacher. So luckily for me, the yoga scene attracts people that are sort of seekers, you know what I mean? And they want to know about this stuff. So when people ask me about all this stuff, you know, that I've been studying for 30 years or, you know, 20 something years, I'm more than happy to, um, you know, tell them what I've learned or, you know, um, help them kind of understand the Bhagavad Gita or any of these books that I've studied for a long time. But it's not like I'm trying to push it on anybody. And uh, I'm way more comfortable that way. And it still seems that somehow or other, a lot of people are kind of, you know, coming up to me, you know, through yoga and, and getting really inspired by bhakti and the more spiritual side of yoga as, as opposed to just the physical side of yoga, which is, which was pretty much what yoga was in America, you know, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I think that with the popularity of yoga being so big, it's, it's literally the fastest growing uh, fitness modality in the world. Hmm. Like even, even more than CrossFit, like yoga is, is, is rising in popularity every year. So I think there's always going to be a small subset of those people that they want to know what the spirituality behind the, the physical practice is. And, you know, your vibe attracts your tribe. So mm-hmm. I kind of teach that, teach that way. So somehow or other people that are, that are looking for that, um, they come to my classes. You know, you, you mentioned sort of, uh, looking down on other people. I, I certainly did some of that when I was younger too. And I think about, you know, like going to punk shows and stuff and like, Oh, look at all these fucking losers that are getting drunk and blah, blah, blah. Um, and what I didn't understand when I was younger, like empathy has been the biggest like growth point for me is like, well, yeah, it's sad that they're like drinking and smoking angel dust and whatnot, especially, you know, you think about those people back in those Lower East Side shows back in the day. Well, why, you know, why was this person living in a burned out van in Tompkins Square Park smoking crack? It's probably because they went through some pretty serious shit when they were a kid, you know, and uh I, you know, empathy and being able to just look through someone else's eyes is the thing that I really have, I think, found as I'm older. Yeah, exactly the same with me. Like, in, instead of pointing a finger, I would rather reach a hand out to help somebody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Youth of Today had one line for a song. It was, it was, the, it was the first song that we, that we wrote. Live fast, die young was just a fad for fucking losers that didn't care. Which I loved when I was 15. <laughs> I loved you know, it. It had some sort of like, you know, energy to it that, you know, people could relate to. 
but that's not my attitude these days. Right. You know, you know, if, if there was a, if there, if there was a homeless person or a person that was on drugs, I'd be like, what can I do to serve you and help you? And, you know, that's more my mood these days than, you know, than to write a song, you know, against their lifestyle. Right. You know, you think it's easy to think that leadership is telling other people what to do, but it's really helping them. That's real leadership service. That's true. And, you know, that's that, you know, that's one of the main tenets of Bhakti Yoga also is it's not about what I can take. What I can take is not going to make you happy. It's just going to make you selfish and narcissistic and unhappy, actually. Life isn't about what you can take and what you can get. Life is about what you can give. And so, you know, when you're on this this path of yoga, every day you're out there. Sometimes you sometimes you you live up to the mark. Sometimes you don't. But you have that in your mind that you know I want to live like a purpose driven life. I only I'm only here for a few short years. What can I do to contribute? And you know that's that's always been my mindset. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, this is Mike Wiebe, and I'm the singer in a band called The Riverboat Gamblers. And I'm Zach Blair. I play guitar in a band called Rise Against. Mike and I also have a band called The Draculas, and we also have this great, amazing new podcast called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah, each week we're going to ask ourselves and we're going to ask our guests what three favorite things they are into at that moment or in their entire lives. And then we're either going to agree with them or we're going to make fun of them. And uh, you're going to listen to it and you're going to like it or we will make fun of you. How about that? I just flipped it on you, the person listening to this right now. But we're going to do it every week here on the Sound Talent Network. Once again, it's called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah. <laughs> But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or 
go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. What was it like in, you know, sort of the, the peak of shelter, you know, in the nineties or having people, and you guys were still pretty young, you know, you seemed so much older to me then because I was a teenager, but you guys were in your twenties then, you know, what's it like being in your twenties and having people, you know, put you on this pedestal as some sort of like, you know, uh, I don't know, spiritual leader, like that's gotta be a weird thing. I think it was much more of a head trip for, uh, for Ray Capo, you know, cause he was the singer and he was the, he, he was the voice of the band, but it is, it is a trip. It is a trip because here we are, we're following the spiritual path where we don't, we're not into fame. We're not into profit. We're not into, you know, all these things that just kind of like all these accolades that just come naturally when you're in a band. I mean, you guys were living for anyone who doesn't know, you guys were living as monks in a temple at the beginning of the band. Yeah, we were. We would wake up at three o'clock in the morning, take freezing cold showers, meditate for two hours, chant, sing songs, (laughs) you know, do rituals. And it was incredible. What a great time. Like I still look back at that time, like living like a monk, even though it was super austere, there's so much happiness in, in living a simple life of service. And like self-study, it was really kind of beautiful time in my life. And then a couple of years after that, you're playing to a million people in Brazil with no doubt. Yeah, it was a trip. Personally, what I would do is before we would play, you know, we would play like these big shows, you know, these festival shows in South America and all over Europe and you know, even in America where you're playing to like 50,000 people. And it's so easy to get carried away that I'm the center of attention and I'm the object of worship and look at all these people in the crowd. That's not my position. That's Krishna's position. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I have to remember that somehow or other that has put me here. Now, how can I be of service? Like, how can I put out a message that could, you know, possibly change people's life or uplift people? It's really interesting too, because we played this show, the Dynamo Festival. You ever heard of the Dynamo Festival? Mm-hmm. 100,000 people, you know, it was literally 100,000 people. The stage is like three stories up, you know, there's like a half of a, you know, a quarter of a football field before the crowd even It's so weird. It's like playing on a building and it's people as far as the eye can see. It just, it, it looks like there's a million people. Like you can't even believe how many people, a hundred thousand people is. And, um, before we played that show and I was, I was one of the last people that was living at a monk as the monk in a temple when we played that show. And so I was about to go on stage and I said, Krishna, somehow or other, you brought me here in front of a hundred thousand people. Like, let me just try to, you know, put out some energy you know, that's really going to make a difference in somebody's life. I, I actually said a prayer like that before I went out on the stage. And then these days I do, um, you know, uh, Ray has a, has his own podcast called wisdom of the sages. Have you ever heard of that? I've seen, I haven't listened to it, but I've seen it. Yeah. He does it every single day, seven days a week <laughs> now for long podcast, but, um, he started these discussion groups and I'm one of the, I'm one of the discussion group leaders. And it's just like, you know, people come along that are new to bhakti and, I kind of answer their questions and, you know, sometimes we'll talk about the Bhagavad Gita or, you know, I'll just find something to, you know, some kind of Vedic story to talk about from the Ramayana or something. And one of the guys in my group, he said, you know, it's so weird 
because I was just a punk rocker. And I went to your show at the Dynamo Festival. And I was just in the, in the sea, in the crowd. I didn't even know who Shelter was. And I was just watching the band. And you guys were saying all this stuff on stage about Krishna and about non-materialism. And it just struck such a chord in me that it literally changed my whole life. And here I am, and I'm in your discussion group. <laughs> so it was so weird because when he said that, I remember actually saying like a prayer, like, I'm here. Let me just like, you know, do some good while I, while I have the attention of 100,000 people. And somehow or other, you know, here's this one kid in the crowd whose life was like changed by it. And I, and I kind of, you know, our paths kind of, you know, intersected, you know, decades later. And I thought, how cool. <laughs> and I'm sure you've heard thousands of stories like that over the years. Yeah. Um, whenever I hear a story like that, I never, I always think that I'm just paying it forward. Like, Somehow, by the mercy of my teachers, you know, I had some, I had some, you know, I have, I have gurus and teachers in my life that literally spent years teaching me all this stuff for no money, for no money, just out of the kindness of their hearts. They kind of took me under their wing and they, you know, they, they, they tried to like show me a better way to live and, you know, spiritual principles that would be like a compass to, to guide my life. And I'm just so indebted to them. So whenever somebody, whenever I do something small, like a fanzine or whatever, and I put in some like basic truths and somebody reads and gets something out of it and they tell me, oh, I'm so, you know, I got something out of it and so indebted to you or whatever. I always think this is just stuff that my teacher, that my teachers taught me and I'm just giving a fraction back. And um, I always just kind of pass on the, uh, the indebtedness to the people that, took their time to give it to me. And that's how, you know, that's really how life is. It's just sort of a chain of people that are trying to uplift each other. And we just kind of like all pull each other up. What else is, what else is there to do in life? Work nine to five and make a bunch of money. Like who cares? For what, you know, and for anybody who's listening, you know, remember that you don't have to be on a stage in front of a hundred thousand people to do that. You know, just saying the right thing at the right moment to the right person in line at Starbucks or something could change their life. You know, I've had those experiences. I remember like there was a doorman at the building I used to work at that just said something to me once in like 2005 or something that totally just flipped a switch for me and helped me get over some really difficult problems that I was having. And I, I barely knew the guy, but just whatever he said to me that day really made a difference in my life. And you don't have to have an audience of a hundred thousand people to be that person. Yeah, that that was the weird thing that somehow or other we did it through hardcore and, and punk. <laughs> it was it was a trip. It was really kind of cool and strange experience. You mentioned something. I was reading the interview that you did with Ray from Downset in War and Illusion, rereading that. And you you guys talked about the line that they had in one of their songs, which was uh, there's a God and I bow and you will hate me for it. And, you know, people listening to this now will think that, you know, oh, well, everything that Porcel's saying is so positive and, you know, helpful and uplifting. This is a great message. But people were not, it was not welcome at all. Like, you know, when Shelter came out in like the, you know, early 90s, people did not like it, did not want to hear it. And people, people would boycott and picket our shows. Sure. And they would call you all kinds of awful names and, you know, you're brainwashing hardcore kids and it was this dangerous cult and rah, rah, rah. It was like, 
it's it's so sad that this is one of the things that I really frustrates me about, you know, I guess I'll say alternative music in general is like if you get up on stage and say a bunch of negative, hateful shit, not hateful as in like bigoted, but like negative, angry stuff, people will applaud you and tell you how cool you are. And like you'll you'll never get pushed back for being a negative, angry person. But if you say something kind, it's corny. And if you try to be positive and promote a healthy, a healthy lifestyle and way of thinking, you know, uh, you're brainwashing people. And it, 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 even back then, even as a kid, that just struck me as such a sad, disappointing thing to see. You know, it was funny. People would come to shelter shows and they would be like, get the fuck out of punk rock. No gods, no masters. We don't want any spirituality or religion in the, in the punk scene. How dare you say all this stuff? And I was just like, you want to know something? Fuck you, dude. Fuck you. Who are you to say what fucking punk rock is? Right. You know, when I grew up in punk, it was just about, you got something to say. You've learned three chords on your guitar. You get up there and you say your piece. And it was all about just like, if you had something passionate to say, if there was something that, you know, in your life that affected you, you get on stage and, and you say your piece. Just. To, to say anything less than that, to say that you can't say what's in your heart in our scene, that's not progressive thinking. That's not open-mindedness. That's fascism. It's you know dogma. What I mean? It is. It's just as dogmatic as, as, as you know, they said that we were dogmatic. And Exactly. It's like the, the punk script that you have to follow. And it's especially frustrating knowing how much of that message could help people that you guys got so much pushback for it. You know, especially when you would, we would be in Europe and there'd be like some crusty punk dude with like a Marlboro cigarette hanging out of his mouth and like a 40. And, you know, he's trying to tell, he's trying to tell me that, you know, get the fuck out of, get, get the fuck out of punk rock. I don't like the way you live. <laughs> you know right. I, mean? it, I just found it like, you know, really ironic, you know, punk rock was supposed to be about freedom of expression. That was like the number one thing. And who's some guy with a with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, drunk off his ass, telling me what I can and can't say, especially since I was around way before that freaking dude was around. So it used to really piss me off that people would kind of like say, this is our club. If you don't follow our rules, then you're kicked out of our club. Motherfucker, this is my club. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? It's my club too. And if I have something to say that it's not even like I'm saying racist things or, you know, something that's like, Hateful Hurtful. things towards yeah. a, towards another person. I'm saying good things. Like I, I think the the real change came later on when people sort of read the lyrics, and when they saw like you know Ray's lyrics, and they would be like, I actually agree with this. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people they can get behind that message of anti-materialism and anti-consumerism, and they sort of you know have have felt that in their own life that when they lean into that, lean into that, they, they feel empty and and hollow. I think people have Mm -hmm. that experience themselves. And so it it was, it was weird in the beginning, but it sort of leveled out after a few years, at least by the time mantra came out, it was, wasn't any of that stuff. Yeah. Then you guys were major label sellouts. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's always going to be someone to complain about what you're doing. Always something. I think a lot of it is that people don't like being confronted with the truth. 
you know, the things that you guys were talking about were, were the truth, which is like, we all know that we're probably more materialistic than we should be. We all know that we're, you know, envious or whatever. Like everyone is aware of our shortcomings, like in your heart, you know, it doesn't, I guess, depending on who you are, you don't like hearing the truth because, you know, you see a reflection in the mirror of what you know is inside your heart and you don't like it. And, you know, you can respond to that by attacking the messenger or you can respond to it by saying, hey, thank you for, you know, reminding me that that's something I need to work on. And unfortunately, most people respond to it by attacking the messenger. You know, that's so true. It, you know, it really became polarizing in the beginning, even for youth today. Like, he, he, he can, can you imagine going into CBGBs where everybody's fucked up on like really hard drugs? No. And, and, you're, and being a bunch of like clean cut kids from fucking Connecticut and Westchester going into the belly of the beast and, you know, with fucking all those characters and telling them to put down the 40. No, I can't fucking imagine that. Yeah, it was. I think it's because there's some truth to it. It really hurts. It really hurts people. And they kind of, and they, um, they respond with violence. Like, you know, it's so confronting to them because they realize I'm just a drunken, stupid, you know, punk. Uh, here I am. I'm smoking angel dust. It's not good for me. Anybody that's right. smoking angel dust, they know. This Although at the like, same time, from their perspective, if I was in their shoes and I had gone through what a lot of those people had gone through, I'd probably be pissed off too. I'd probably be like, why don't you go the fuck back to Westchester instead of telling me how to live? Unfortunately, it wasn't that nice. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to fucking punch you in the face and smash a, a pool stick over your head. Right. <laughs> there was a lot of that stuff. So I can understand you know, from their perspective, I can understand how they might not, you know, love, especially you guys being, to be fair, you guys were deliberately confrontational too, in a way that shelter was not. Yeah, we were for sure. We were, we were young kids on a mission. Um, and, and it, it really was like that, you know, even for me, like, you know, when I'm, you know, when I'm studying all this stuff and I understand that there is a sort of a mark that I'm shooting for and, you know, you just, you don't always live up to that. And, um, sometimes when somebody, when somebody shines a light on that and you realize that it's, it it is, it's, it's like confronting to you and you either have two ways, you either have two ways to deal with it. You can, uh, you can get mad or you can really just kind of like introspect and and think, man, I got to change my life. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's a journey. We're on, we're on a journey, you know, enlightenment doesn't come overnight. It comes step by step by step by step. And you really just have to be kind of like easy and, you know, gentle and, and, um, encouraging to people, you know, sometimes when you do, when you do it in a way where you're fault finding people so hard, it's so funny because when you fault find people, even if they, even if they take it to heart, it's almost like I'm a piece of shit. You know what I mean? Like, like, no, no, no. You're left dejected. And I tell you, there's been great people in my life, great mentors in my life and and teachers and gurus. You know, when I was like a punk rock kid trying to get into all this stuff and, you know, I was a mess and I had a big ego and I was filled with bad qualities. These really super spiritually evolved teachers that I came across, they wouldn't fault find in me. They would find the little bit of good in me. And they would magnify that good and they would fan that spark of good and they would encourage me in that direction. 
And then I'm encouraged. You know what I mean? Like, then I'm hopeful. Then I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I can do this. I want, want to move forward in life. When you're just constantly nagging on people of what they're doing wrong, it's really, it's the opposite. It's discouraging. So um, in my younger days, if I did that to anybody, I sincerely apologize. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's all a learning process. I'm the singer of Project X that sang Straight Edge Revenge. <laughs> That's for right. For God's sake. <laughs> the, the last question I have is a, a, a pretty heavy one. And I, I apologize for for throwing this on you, but I will do it anyway, because I, I, I want to know, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping you can help me. So as, as I get older now in my 40s, you know, I remember reading in War and Illusion and, you know, other things, you know, the idea of, you know, that the body is temporary and that, you know, there's the cycle of birth, old age, sickness and death. But, you know, when you're 15, it's hard to internalize that. It's hard to really feel that. But now that I'm older, it's clear, you know, as you said, I can see myself changing bodies. I can tell that I'm not as young as I used to be. And, and I can, I can see the end, you know, hopefully not anytime soon, but I can see it. Like I'm having to kind of come to terms with the fact that I'm going to die, you know, and that, um, and that that's, that's a thing that sickness and death is going to come for me. Like it does for anybody, for everybody else. And, uh, and to be honest, I'm having a hard time with it. What would you tell me about that? Well, you know, when I, you know, I've, I've been to India many, many, many times. And sometimes you'll see these sadhus, these like, you know, wandering holy men. And they will actually walk around with, they'll go to a crematorium and they'll get a human skull. And they will walk around with a human skull in their hands all day, all day long for years. And that skull is a reminder to them that we're not going to be here forever. Like I'm going to be the skull. Like one day it could be tomorrow. We don't, you know, usually when we think of death, we think ah, 20, 30 years. No, could be it five could be minutes next, from now. Yeah. It could be next week. You get in a car crash so easily these days. I know. I mean, especially from the punk scene, I know so many people that have died young and, and untimely and have, you know, friends that, you know, died young. Um, you know, even Alex Brown from gorilla biscuits, like who saw that coming? It was, you know, it's, so crazy to think this is what this is what i'll have to say to comfort you and it's a and it's an analogy from from uh the vedas if you're walking through the woods and it's getting dark and you can't really you, you can kind of make out shapes but the sun is going down and you, you can't really see uh too well and you see a long thing in your path and you think it's a snake and you're like, oh my God, it's a snake. The snake is going to bite me. And you're filled with fear. And you, and you look at that snake and you think, oh my God, this could, it could bite me. It could kill me. I could die out here in the forest. And you're feeling real fear. But then when you get a little bit closer, you understand it's not a snake at all. It's a rope. So I was feeling real fear. But the whole time I was perfectly safe. I was in absolutely no danger at all. Because I misidentified a rope as a snake, I was filled with fear. So that is the exact situation of the spirit soul. You're not the body. You're actually an eternal spiritual being that's temporarily encased in this body, just like we go in a car and we drive in a car. Or, you know, the Bhagavad Gita says, just like you wear clothes. And then when your clothes wear out, you get new clothes. You put on new clothes. 
the body is like that. It's just, it's like an external covering to the eternal spirit soul. But because we've misidentified the body to be the self, when the body eventually breaks down and stops working, we're filled with anxiety and fear for absolutely no reason. You are perfectly 100% safe. Just like the whole second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, verse after verse after verse, you're the eternal spirit soul. You're not the body. The body dies, but you don't die. Um, uh, the soul can't, can't be cut to pieces. The soul can't be withered by the wind. The soul can't be um, destroyed by any weapon. Like verse after verse after verse, that's literally the first teachings of the Bhagavad Gita when Krishna starts to instruct Arjuna in the second chapter. That's his first teaching. You're not the body. You're the eternal spirit soul that's inside of the body. And when you truly understand that, and when you have that deep realization, that doesn't scare anymore. There's a, there's a great story about George Harrison. You ever heard of, you ever heard about how George Harrison died? No. No one really knows his story because it was it, nobody even knew George Harrison was sick because he was such a private person. But there was a Krishna devotee that was there um, when he died. He requested this Krishna devotee to basically help him exit his his body because he had cancer and he was dying. And so they were and so he George Harrison asked them to actually chant the Maha Mantra. They were chanting Hare Krishna when George Harrison was leaving his body. And the doctor was constantly checking his vital statistics. And the doctor was checking him and he, he turned to the people that were there and he said, this is it. His vital signs are plummeting. You know, he's going he's gonna to die any minute now. If you have anything you, that you want to say to him, say it right now. And so this Krishna devotee walked up to George Harrison and he said, George, do you realize this is it? This is the time of death. Like you are exiting your body right now. And he said that George Harrison was completely lucid. And he said, yes, I, I understand. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be leaving my body right now. And he said, are you scared? George Harrison looked at him and he said, I have absolutely no fear. Please continue chanting. And then they went back, they sat down in the harmonium and, you know, they, they started chanting Hare Krishna. And that's how George Harrison left his body. So that's not even somebody who's like this great guru and, a, you know, guy sitting on a lotus posture on the top of the mountain. This is George Harrison. He was at Beatles. He was just, you know, a, a musician. But he reached a state of enlightenment by the end of his life where death wasn't scary for him anymore. He had this, he had this spiritual realization that he wasn't the body and that he was, he was perfectly safe. And so we just have to practice that. We just have to work on, on, on developing that. And that's, that's a spiritual. There's a part of me that I can feel clinging to my body that I'm like, oh, well, maybe they'll invent something that'll help me live longer and maybe this and maybe that. And, uh, and maybe that will happen. And if it does, that's cool. But I, I know that clinging to the body is ultimately futile. You know, it's funny because in the yoga sutras, um, there's, there's miseries of life. There's these things called the clashes, these things that cause anxiety in life. And one of them is clinging to life because, you know, you can, you can imagine like you're, you know, someone sticks a gun in your face and you're clinging to life because you think I'm being put about out of existence. And so that's one of these, that's one of like the miseries of, you know, the causes of anxiety in life. That's unnecessary. I'll tell you another story. Did you ever hear that shelter was on tour with earth crisis and we got in that horrific car accident? 
You ever hear that story? Yeah, I remember that. That was uh, in Washington, right? It was between Salt Lake City and Denver in the Rocky Mountains somewhere. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And we were in a van with a trailer. A van had a cap on it. We had a loft built in the back. I was sleeping like this with my head towards the back of the van. Ray Capo was right next to me with his head towards the front of the van. And our dr- we were in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. Picture this. Our driver falls asleep at the wheel and we careen over the guardrail. And in midair, we plummet 150 feet off of a cliff and smash in this ravine at the bottom of at the bottom of a mountain. Our whole van was smashed to pieces. Everybody in the whole van was knocked unconscious, except for me, and except for this 19-year-old kid that I met at the temple that begged me to come on tour with him. So I kind of like personally took him. And he was sitting and we built another loft that was kind of like above the driver's seat where the cap was. We kind of put a plank there and you could sleep up there. And he was up there and I couldn't see him, but he was screaming, Parmananda. Uh, You know, my Christian name is Parmananda. Parmananda, I can't feel my legs. I'm bleeding. I'm going to die. Please help me. Please help me. And like my heart is just like jumping out of my chest and, and Ray's right next to me and I can see his face and he was like unconscious and his whole side of his face was just black and blue. We had a harmonium, you know, the one of those yeah. things that you chant with the little pump piano. Yeah. It flew out from the back and it smashed him in one side of his face. So he looked like that guy from Batman. Right. His, <laughs> yeah. His face is destroyed. And I was shaking him and I was going, Raghunath, wake up. Raghunath, wake up. And I was shaking him, shaking him, shaking him like really hard. And he wasn't waking up. I was like, oh my God, Ray Capo, my childhood friend, my best friend is dead. Everybody else must be dead because I can't hear anybody else talking. And our roadie, this young kid that I brought on tour is going to die any second. He's literally screaming bloody murder. I'm going to die. Somebody please help me. Parman, are you there? Please help me. And so his name was Will. So I said, Will, I'm going to go get some help. And the van was on his side and we had the plastic top of the van and it was kind of cracked. I, you know, I was really, really hurt. I wasn't kind of sure how hurt I was, but I managed to sort of like crack a piece of the plastic off and I kind of rolled out of the van and it was outside. And I don't know how I got to my feet, but somehow I got to my feet and I saw the cliff. And I started running towards the cliff. I mean, this was like a sheer, it would be hard to even climb this cliff. And I got about four feet. And as soon as I got to my feet and I took my first step, I was in such intense pain that I started running and I took like four steps and I flipped and I fell right on my back. I was in so much intense pain. Like, let me tell you, I've broken my leg. I've broken my nose like four times. I've been in fights. I've been hit on a, I've been hit over the head with a bottle. You know, I've been in pain before, but this was like a pain that I never felt in my life. Like, first of all, my hand was cut open really bad. And so I had blood all over me. I was wearing a white t-shirt and boxers and my shirt, my front of my shirt, I could look down. It's just filled with blood. It was from my hand, but I thought it was from my head because I thought I cracked my head open because there was so much blood. And I broke six ribs in my back, right next to my spine. And I tell you, if you break a rib, that's like right here in the front, it's so painful. Can you imagine breaking six ribs right next to your spine? 
dude, with every breath, there's pain. So I'm on my back. It's in the, we're in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of night and it's, it's desert climate. So it's really hot during the day, but at night it's freaking freezing. And I'm in a pair of shorts and t-shirts. So I'm freezing. And I can still hear my friend in the van. I'm going to die. Please help me. I can't feel my legs. And I'm just sitting there and I'm just thinking everybody's dead. My head must be cracked open because there's so much blood all over me. A roadie's going to die. I'm not going to make it through the night. And it was so cold that my body was like going into convulsions. And I was in so much pain that I was, I was practically blacking out like at every second. But it was the sheer will to live where I was just like, every time I would start to black out, I'd be like, no, if I black out, I'm going to die. And so I would like force myself back into consciousness, even though I was in so much pain. And that was happening like every 10 seconds. It was hellish, dude. It was like, really like, you know, this is it. Like you talk about death and now here it is. It's, it's, it's upon me. And so what do I do? I have absolutely no shelter left in the world whatsoever, but Krishna. And I just started praying, Krishna, please help me. Please save me. If this, if this is my time to go, please like comfort me because I'm not ready for this. Like, like I'm like, you know, freaking out. I'm not ready for this. I'm filled with fear. Krishna, please be with me. Please help me. Please, um, you know, see, see me through this. If I'm going to die, please, please help me through this. And I just started chanting. I was going, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And I'm like, I'm practically yelling it because I'm just in so much distress. And I tell you, when you really sincerely petition Krishna from your heart in an hour of need like that, Krishna reaches through space and time. And he comes and he helps you. And it was like magic that somehow or other, it was like a realization got dropped out of the sky in my mind. You want to hear, you want to hear what the realization that came to me? It just, it just popped into my mind to this day. I'm convinced it was like gift from Krishna. You're going through this. Here's a little, here's a little knowledge. I had this realization that if you're, if you're sitting in a movie theater, and you're watching a movie, like say you're watching Star Wars, and the hero of the movie, Luke Skywalker, is going through all these trials and tribulations. Now, if it's a really good movie like Star Wars, and they do a really good character development, you're sitting in the audience, but you start to, you start to identify with the hero of the movie and the things that he feels, you feel. Like when he's courageously fighting in a battle, you feel that. And that's what makes a, a movie so good. You know, you, you're kind of identifying and you're feeling what the, what the hero of the movie is feeling. And that's the, that's the beauty of a movie. So I was thinking of just, I was thinking of just as that happens when you watch a movie, I'm identifying with this body. Watching the cosmic movie of life, like Yogananda says. Exactly. Like, th- like, that's that's the exact realization that I had that this life is almost like a movie that you're watching and things are going around around you and matter is moving around you and you're identifying with this character almost like you're playing a video game in a virtual reality it's not you 
you're moving it, but it's not you. And it seems to be you. And you're kind of plugged into this, you know, this, this, this body that's made out of inanimate matter. But I was thinking just as like you identify with the character of the movie, when he's going through all this stuff, you're feeling fear and you're, fe- you know, he's fighting and you're feeling, you know, fear. But the whole time you're sitting in your chair and you're perfectly safe. So I was thinking, I don't quite understand it right now, but somehow or other, I'm safe. My body may be broken, but I'm not broken. I'm a spirit soul. I'm completely separate from the body. I'm, I'm not going through this. Somehow or other, I'm completely safe. I'm sitting in the chair in the movie theater. I'm just watching a movie. And I was so comforted by that. I was like incredibly, incredibly, incredibly comforted by that. And then I started like kind of chanting softly. We ended up all surviving (laughs) miraculously. Like this paramedics came and they like basically rescued us and took us to the hospital and they patched us up and everything. Was, was the roadie uh, seriously hurt like permanently or anything? You want to know what's so weird. The roadie had to be helicoptered out to some hospital, I think in Salt Lake where they immediately took him to into surgery right off the helicopter. And he had the same break in his neck as Christopher Reeves. Remember the actor that played Superman that was paralyzed? He had the exact same break in his neck. It was the exact same vertebrae and it was crushed. And the doctors couldn't believe it. They operated on, they were convinced he was going to be paralyzed and he could walk. They, they thought it was kind of like a, like a miracle. And I didn't see him. I called him a few times after that to see how he was doing, but we kind of like lost touch. And just a couple of years ago, I saw him um, right outside of Generation Records in New York City. I don't know if you've never ever been there. It's a great record store. I was coming out of the record store and he was walking down the street. And I was like, and he was walking with a cane. And I was like, oh my God, Will, what is up? Like, how are you doing? And I saw him with a cane and I was like, man, you're still walking with a cane decades later. I was like, man, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And he said, sorry. He said, are you kidding me? Every day I wake up and I thank Krishna and I feel deep gratitude for Krishna for letting me live through that. And every day is like a new day to me because I was so on the brink of death and somehow or other I miraculously lived and that I can walk. I don't care about walking with his cane. He's like, I have nothing but gratitude for walking with a cane and waking up every morning and being alive. And I thank Krishna for it every single morning. And I was like, what a great attitude. You know, you could be bitter about the whole thing. This sucks. I got to walk with a cane. Or you could have nothing but appreciation and gratitude. I thought, and I was so like impressed with him. And yeah, it was a crazy story. But somehow or other, don't worry about it, man. Even at the time of death, you're safe. That, that snake, that snake is a rope, dude. <laughs> I'm working on it. It's it's going to be a tough one for me, but I will keep working on it. And uh, and hopefully by the time, the time that day comes, I'll have internalized that. So I appreciate the conversation. I'm very grateful for all the ideas that you've put out there into the world over the years. It's really helped me you know, become the person I am in, in the good ways. I'm sure there's thousands of other people across the world that would say the same thing. Um, always happy to help out with anything I can. We'll be on the lookout for your new band for the new shelter record. And, uh, I wish you well with, uh, everything else you have going on. 
All right, Finn, thank you so much for having me on. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.